Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Arden O'Connor. I'm Diana Clark, and we're going to be talking today with Nick McPhee, who has a podcast and a resource hub highlighting issues in mental health philanthropy and the ways we can leverage resources through impactful solutions. He talks about time, expertise, voice, and money. Nick, can you please tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into working in the field of philanthropy with mental and behavioral health? Yeah, thank you, Diana and Arden. It's really great to be here and, um, and talk about this, this subject. I was one of those lucky people that some 20 plus years ago, after a career in business, I was able to step back and put my energies into the field of philanthropy and nonprofit work. And for almost 20 years, I worked in the field of uh, nonprofit environmental support, health and human services, clean water and health. I worked at two different family foundations did my own philanthropy, actually back in uh, 2001, started a uh, philanthropy called Friends of the Children of King County, which was the Washington State effort for a mentoring program for at-risk kids. And it was my first exposure to working with, you know, youth who uh, came from circumstances that were obviously way more trying than anything that I had ever experienced. And that program today is a nationwide program, uh, super successful uh, it was really my first exposure to the power of collaboration and working, in this case, with schools. And, you know, my journey, um, you know, in the nonprofit sector, I, you know, I loved. I was, uh, you know, really enjoyed it, met a lot of really tremendous people. And then, unfortunately, about 10 years ago, I had the misfortune of losing my wife at the time to cancer and experienced um, going through my own profound grief. I had two boys at the time uh, who were 19 and 21, now doing really well, but, you know, losing their mom was really difficult. And, you know, we experienced what it was like to need support, uh, need emotional support, uh, need coping skills, um, and realized, you know, if even for people, you know, like us that had capacity, how difficult it was to find the right resources. And after... You know, kind of taking a little bit of a hiatus, getting back in the nonprofit sector. I worked, uh, helped um, be an investor in a company that uh, focused on clean water and health in developing countries, uh, but then met and married uh, my now wife, who is a family therapist. And, you know, we started thinking about ways that we could support a broader systemic effort around mental health. And that's kind of what led to that journey. So I have a rich, deep history in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. But up until about two years ago, I had not had any real exposure to thinking about and working in and supporting philanthropically the mental health and behavioral health field. Thank you. Nick, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your background. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that oftentimes people who are drawn 
to philanthropic causes in this area have had personal experiences related to substance use or mental health. It can be in extreme situations where a parent has lost a child and they create a foundation in their honor. It can be for people who've had much more ideal endings where someone got better through the support of an organization and gives back philanthropically because they believe that a treatment center or a a type of intervention was particularly helpful to their loved ones. My question to you is, have you found that interacting and getting involved in philanthropic, you know, philanthropic causes related to behavioral health issues helps. Is it cathartic for people? Does it help doing it help people to define their own experience related to behavioral health in a different way? I think so. I think anybody that's had, you know, an individual within their family, a loved one, a friend who has gone through, you know, a profoundly difficult experience, and whether you have the chance to support that person or, you know, are just in, in contact with that. And I think, you know, any human being today knows somebody who's had that kind of exposure. You know, when you come out the other end of that, hopefully in a, in a positive, you know, recovery journey, you know, I think those of us that have some capacity, you know, feel some, you know, propulsion, some internal uh, motivation to try to say, gosh, you know, we had resources, we had capability, we had support, what can I do, you know, to help others? Uh, and it's personal, you know, I was talking to in my podcast, Garen Steglin, who runs One Mind, which is an amazing uh, philanthropy focused on mental health and providing large amounts of dollars to um, look at brain chemistry and, and ways to support brain research around mental illness. You know, and he said, you know, when he goes out and talks to people, you know, about, you know, raising money for this for this cause, you know, it's personal. He has a personal story around it. His son, Brandon, um, was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was in college. He's now, you know, on a recovery journey. He's the CEO of One Mind now. Um, but when he's talking to people, you know, they can connect to you know, stories both, you know, uh, in their own lives and and say, you know, yes, this matters. This is something, and and people, you know, there's some definite skin in the game, which I think is a little bit different than, you know, my experience with people who care deeply about nature, who care deeply about tropical diseases, who care deeply about, you know, clean water and health. It can be a little bit more disconnected. We all know somebody who's been, you know, touched by some sort of mental or behavioral health issue. The challenge, I think, is in the mental health space is figuring out what to do. Um, It's complex and messy. The presence of public health dollars, the presence of government, you know, and uh, other support, you know, mechanisms like hospitals and medical institutions makes it extraordinarily challenging for a philanthropist to figure out how to have meaningful impact. And this is now at a time when more than ever, resources and support services are crucially important. So how do you go about funding those, finding those pockets that need support in valuable ways? That is the big question. It's something I've spent the last year, you know, researching, engaging with people. We have a group of about 25 philanthropists in the Pacific Northwest that meet regularly in person and then obviously over Zoom and hoping to to re-engage personally. Um, trying to figure that out, you know, where are the opportunities? You know, my podcast, which is an offshoot of this um, in-person group, 
Um, I've interviewed over 25 people, have about you know another five or six already recorded to be posted on interesttoimpact.org, and it's on all the, the major streaming services, interviewing people, essentially asking that question. Um, and it kind of gets back, to, I think, to a couple different things. One, how much money and, and influence and impact do you want to have? Because that allows you to think about operating at a scale where you could truly make systemic change. I think the second thing is what are your personal interests and uh, and what connections might you have within your community or within your area? I do think there are opportunities for a philanthropist to become you know deeply involved and engaged. You know, I through the course of my travels over the last twenty plus years in philanthropy have met some really great organizations and great people within those organizations. And for relatively small amounts of money, you can help fund pilot programs. You can help, you know, provide support to expand their program to a different location. There's a lot of money in public health right now. You know, the various recovery acts, you know, that are, you know, been passed um, legislatively, both within states and at the federal level, have meant there's a lot of money coming into behavioral and mental health. But all these individual nonprofits are trying to figure out how they can not only influence how that money is spent, but then how can they position themselves to take full advantage of it and provide you know, some way to leapfrog you know, where we are right now. So a good example is technology. Um, with the, you know, the absence of in-person uh, therapy, it's been really difficult if you're you know, a kid within a school. How do you maintain connection with you know, a therapist, mental health counselor? So you know, dollars you know, can come from philanthropy that might not be funded through you know, the public institutions uh, to provide devices and connectivity so that kids can provide uh, or can have a way to um, you know, connect with a with a mental health therapist. So, I, I, you know, I think it really is a is a function of what are your interests, what do you care about, and can you connect with um, some organization? I think you know my experience with all the nonprofits that I come in contact with in the mental health field, they're extraordinary people, really passionate, and most of them have a very good sense about you know what's happening that's new and fresh and innovative and what direction should we be going i'll just give you one quick example an organization in washington state called pioneer human services that primarily works with people coming out of the prison system has a pilot program in one of the counties in washington where they actually have trained mental health therapists and social workers that ride in police cars um, they're uniformed. They have special vests. The whole goal is to find people who might be more, you know, inclined, you know, towards some sort of mental health issue as opposed to a criminal behavior, and you know, help make an intervention, divert them from the court system, and tying up all the resources there, and get them into a diversion center, get them substance abuse, you know, support, mental health support. Do they need to be on medication, um, and you know, help them get on the right kind of path? It's an intervention that you know, it's a pilot project. The county is looking at how much money they can save by doing that over time. Philanthropic support is crucial to making something like that happen. So I think there's lots of that kind of innovation that's happening right now in almost every community. It's not just about defund the police. The police are gonna be there. There's lots of mental health crises that maybe somebody has a weapon that requires you to have you know, police presence there. And we need to have mental health therapists and social workers involved. 
And so finding ways to work with those existing nonprofit organizations that have the skill sets, but need to figure out a different way to reach those people, I think is something that philanthropy can really be um, supportive of. And so I would just encourage people to look in their own backyard first and find those organizations that are doing the kind of work that they really connect with. I love so much of what you've talked about, Nick, and especially, you know, I've, now I'm going to make it into a two-part question just to make life more difficult. So, so one question is sort of the age-old question for me when it comes to philanthropy. You know, in a prior life, I ran a home for high-risk kids in the foster care system, many of, him, many of whom had been through the criminal justice system and many of whom had mental health and or substance use issues in addition to histories of neglect or abuse in their homes. So very complex population. And the big critique we got from donors was around the scalability of the service and, and the fact that it was an expensive investment for a relatively small number of people. And so one of my questions is, the first part of my question is around trends that you're seeing with either private family foundations or other types of funding sources around, you know, how much does scale matter? Is it all going to be, are all dollars really moving towards solutions that are tech-based? And then the second part of my question just picked up on a theme that you just mentioned, which is what are some of the edgier investments you've seen from large-scale foundations, you know, areas of behavioral health that maybe a few years ago or a decade ago, we probably wouldn't have gone after for liability or uh, for other reasons, but now people are looking at as, you know, geez, this, this might be a way to resolve some of the public health issues that we're facing due to mental health and the opioid crisis. That is a very big question. <laughs> you've, you've touched on you've touched on lots of things. So let's see if I can't break it down. First of all, I would say there's this there's an I think most people are looking and saying, okay, wait, there's what you would call the deep end of the pool, the cases that are complex that are very expensive. Um, you know, to support recovery. Um, they require a lot of, you know, highly qualified individuals, a lot of, you know, technical support, medical support, a psychiatrist, social worker. Um, you really have to provide wrap services, housing, you know, th so those are very expensive. Um, the thing that, you know, a lot of philanthropists are looking at is like, okay, wait, how do we, you know, you can't solve that problem at scale, right? The, the question that you can, you know, address is how do I prevent that from happening, you know, in the first place? What are the root causes of that? And so I think, you know, one of the things that we see is a lot of philanthropy going back and saying, wait a minute, a lot of those kids may have been, you know, impacted by adverse childhood experiences. You know, their brain structure may have been, you know, impacted because of, you know, being a witness to violence in the home or, you know, having violence or sexual violence perpetrated against them. You know, so, you know, going back to those things and, and being able to say, wait, where can we, you know, where are those places that we can intervene earlier and help kids develop resiliency, identify kids that have some issues earlier on and get less expensive, you know, less intense intervention at a much earlier stage to prevent that from happening. And so, you know, where does that take you? Well, it takes you to, you know, working in schools. It takes you at an early age getting in and having you know really good robust mental health support you know in schools and making mental health conversations emotional resilience training you know a part of our curriculum if you will so we see a lot of work happening there um, and it's frankly pretty exciting i think the other thing that we see is if you can intervene earlier when somebody is starting to show some symptoms i was talking to um, andy keller um, 
who runs the Meadows uh, Mental Health Policy Institute in Texas, you know, the number of people who are diagnosed with something like depression, you know, typically the onset, you know, may occur, you know, seven, you know, eight years before they actually clinically, you know, present in a pretty significant way requiring, you know, very significant interventions at that point that's super expensive. So how can we intervene, you know, much earlier? Well, where do we see people? We might see people in medical or clinical settings. And so there's an opportunity, you know, with, you know, your annual physician visit, you know, to start trying to identify much, much earlier people who might be on a path to, you know, major depressive symptoms, where it's a lot less expensive. The intervention at that point might be four or five, six visits with a psychotherapist with teaching things like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, giving them the tools to be successful and avoid those major episodes down the road that are so expensive. So a ton of work by philanthropy, you know, looking at that, for example, the University of Washington got some funding from the Balmer Group recently to develop a bachelor's level program to have people be able to be trained in evidence-based practices, you know, gr graduate, have a bachelor's degree in some sort of psychological support, be able to be working in medical clinics along with doctors and nurses and, you know, help people identify, catch and help people much, much sooner than we would otherwise. So I think that's a great example of how you avoid, you know, major expenses. And those kinds of programs can be scaled. You know, one of the things that we clearly have a problem with is there's just not nearly enough mental health care workers to meet the needs, to meet all the needs that are out there, given the pandemic and the enormous growth in mental health issues by people, you know, some of which are very visible, you know, Naomi Osaka, you know, being one you know, significant example, but there are obviously plenty of others, you know, have identified, you know, all their mental health issues, but lots and lots of people are experiencing that. What are some ways that we can intervene earlier? And then how can we get to scale? You know, it's impossible, you know, to get a therapist right now. It's long waiting lists, you know, what can we do? So how can we think about this a different way? I'll give you, you mentioned technology, and I'll just say very quickly, technology is great. There's lots of opportunities out there, tons of different apps that are available. Um, you know, what works, I think, Arden, you and I had talked a while back on my podcast about is that, you know, you throw the spaghetti up on the wall and see what sticks. I think there's a little bit of that going on in the, in the technology app space. And depending upon what somebody's motivation and interest is, maybe that app clicks with them and it provides them the right tools and support that they can, you know, begin that journey to wellness, you know, for them. But there's also a piece where you say, hey, you know, maybe that's that's not the answer. Maybe it's just a single session intervention. And so you have people like Jessica Schreiber at Stony Brook University, who's developed a strong evidence-based practice around a single session intervention, you know, over the internet, where you can provide tools and technology to somebody um, and enable them to have, you know, self-care and self-help that has a, a really dramatic, you know, ability to improve the outcome. And it's meeting people where they are, especially if you're from a marginalized community, there might be some stigma and shame around, you know, trying to find a therapist, you know, ask a loved one about the fact that you might need help. There may not be any therapists in remote or rural areas. So, you know, figuring out scale solutions using technology where human beings can reach, you know, can find some help 
you know, for themselves. And there's evidence around, you know, that it can work. I mean, that's amazing. That's much, much better, you know, use of philanthropic dollars than trying to figure out, you know, all due respect, how to help, you know, those people who are already, you know, presenting in serious ways and require, you know, significant amounts of money to support their recovery. I love your enthusiasm and your vision right now. But do you think that this generation is more receptive to this message than previous generations, those who are actually contributing to philanthropy young? I do. I think there's definitely, you know, I think the fact that, you know, Michael Phelps, you know, Olympian, you know, talks about his mental health issues and, and using Talkspace, you know, Naomi Osaka talking about it. Um, you know, there's way more conversation in, you know, with younger people about mental health issues. Uh, I think, you know, compared to, you know, at my age, you know, people seeking mental health when I was in high school was just a total, you know, shameful, guilt-ridden, you know, stigma-producing, uh, you know, exercise. I don't think that's the case right now. I think people are, are more open to it. Frankly, the the presence of all the venture capital firms that have poured, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into mental health apps ha has made the conversation around mental health and mental wellness, mental wellness, you know, uh, a really a part of, of the conversation. So I think that's good. Mental health funding, I think, is only on the part of philanthropy is pretty small, you know, like 1.8% of total you know, spending uh, by philanthropy. Uh, it needs to be much bigger. You know, I think, again, part of the challenge has just been trying to figure out what to do and how to provide support, given a lot of the other uh, support sources um, and and payment for mental health resources from insurance companies or Medicare, Medicaid. I think that's been more of the barrier. And I think people are willing to put money in. The fact that the private sector has stepped up with all this innovation in, in the tech side of thing, and it's coincided with the pandemic. I mean, I think it's a fantastic thing. I mean, I have a lot of young adults in my life, my kids, stepkids, um, you know, a lot of friends and, and a lot of them, you know, use these different apps. I think what's interesting is I think it will, a lot of this will shake out, you know, sometimes that th these apps for mental health are based upon the same premise, you know, around gamification. They're trying to get you to accumulate points and experiences and coming back time after time. And the human behavior actually around a lot of these apps is that people will use them once not use them again, may forget about download, not use it. And so, you know, I think, you know, the the experience that some of these researchers are having and, and the innovation around single session, trying to find ways to, to have somebody see somebody once or twice and not commit to, you know, once a week therapy for four years. I mean, I think that's a lot harder. So I think this the, the youth and technology and attention span is really driving, you know, a lot of the innovation around to, you know, shorter, more meaningful interventions that could potentially have, you know, some significant benefit on mental wellness. So Nick, there's a lot of resources, books, articles, websites, podcasts dedicated to the behavioral health space. I want to give you an opportunity here to talk a little bit about your podcast, Interest to Impact, and, and the Behavioral Health Roundtable. You know, why should people tune into these particular resources? 
Well, thank you for the opportunity um, to talk about that. You know, my wife and I were on a journey that maybe many of your listeners are on, trying to figure out how to make productive use of our resources, our connections, you know, our time and our and our financial resources. And it wasn't obvious about what to do. And so we joined with a bunch of friends and started bringing in experts and realized, wait, maybe we could expand this to include a whole bunch of other people that are interested in this topic, but really, quite frankly, can't figure out what to do and don't want to make mistakes, don't want to look stupid. So really, you know, the Interest to Impact podcast, which is an offshoot of this behavioral health roundtable that um, we've been doing for some time now, is really, it's a non-commercial site. You know, there's not trying to sell anything. It's an information hub to be able to listen to people who are experts in the mental and behavioral health field and asking them questions about, you know, what's working, what's not, what's the evidence, you know, how can philanthropists play a meaningful and productive role? And, you know, one of the things that you'll hear, you know, I worked in the, in the family foundation world and, you know, the old joke was if you've met one family foundation, you've met one family foundation. <laughs> We're all unique. It's pretty hard to figure out, you know, what's in common. And even the 25 people that, you know, I've gotten because, you know, good friends with and some started off as friends have become better friends. Others are new friends. Um, but we're all unique and different. We all, some have a policy bent. Some really care about youth. Some really care about the elderly. Some care about schools. Some care about more significant mental health issues like schizophrenia and bipolar. Others care more about substance abuse, addiction, recovery in that field. You know, everybody comes at it from a different perspective. You know, I think the learning that you can gain from this, you know, from coming to the podcast and, you know, picking and choosing. I mean, you know, the, uh, there's some wonderful, um, episodes with experts on policy and the workforce, you know, that may be of no interest to you. But if you're interested in technology and how technology and mental health works, I've got like three or four amazing interviews with researchers that are talking about how technology and mental health can work together to improve lives. And maybe that will prompt some thinking on your part about, you know, ways to support. I continue to learn, you know, on this journey and my commitment is to keep going on this and keep publishing episodes with people that I run across and I find interesting and, and we're still engaging and in, in trying to, to learn more about this. One of the, the things that I keep scratching my head is, you know, how can we provide solutions at scale? And, you know, it's, it's frankly a little bit difficult because when you start talking about that, you start talking about collaboration you start talking about universities and research, you start talking about getting involved with the federal government and the various agencies, the National Institute of Mental Health, you know, organizations that have large amounts of money and trying to figure out how you can really move the needle. And that's trickier. And so often as a philanthropist, depending upon your scale, it's, it feels a little bit easier to gravitate towards your local university you might have connections with and, and find some projects going on by amazing professors there. You might gravitate towards nonprofit organizations that are doing some innovative you know, pilot projects, using technology, using you know, new payment systems, using new approaches. You know, I'm on the board of a hospital in, in Southern California, Eisenhower Medical Center, you know, really trying to look at how we can integrate, you know, medical and behavioral and mental health, you know, into clinical settings um, and, and what are the resources that you need to do to, to provide that kind of support. So we're exploring all those topics. There is no, you know, specific answer. 
But as Bill Smith of this organization, Inseparable, which is a mental health policy organization, um, has talked about, he said, hey, come on in to Philanthropist. The water's warm. You know, there's a lot of really great, amazing people, you know, who are trying to figure this out. And, you know, come on in, you know, bring in your expertise, bring in your your curiosity, bring in your money. Um and you know, and see what can you know what you can do, and maybe it starts with you know some sort of stepped investments, some you know tester grants. Uh, I'll just say this this group that we formed, the Behavioral Health Roundtable. We have another aside from the podcast. We have another spinoff group where a bunch of us have chipped in some money, and we've created a little opportunity fund. Um, so there's about twelve of us now. Um, that have put money into this, and we're looking at making some more, you know, kind of immediate grants to organizations in the Pacific Northwest around mental health, particularly geared toward communities of color, communities that have been marginalized, because they've been, you know, some of the most dramatically impacted by COVID and the pandemic. Uh, it's a little bit more of what I would call a charitable effort, um, not necessarily a system change effort. But how great to be able to work with some colleagues. We're now meeting every six weeks. We're you know trying to figure out a process to solicit you know uh, proposals in a very short you know um, truncated kind of way. Um, but it's part of our learning journey. So I would just encourage people to come to the podcast um, and also, you know, find people in your community. We started off um, working with the Seattle Foundation, um, which is the local donor advised um, foundation in the Pacific Northwest. Um, they didn't have any mental health experts. They connected us uh, with a woman uh, consultant, Catherine Switz, who is amazing, a colleague and friend. Um, and she was able to help start introducing us to people and we formed this small group. So maybe in you know uh, in one of your listeners' communities, there's people like that that you could connect with and start forming a learning circle and and just you know get going. What a great way to spend your energy, your time, and your focus. Thank you, Nick McPhee. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you are so inclined, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.